This episode of Safe and Sound is part of our summer safety series. Each episode focuses on different challenges that arise mostly in the summer months. We speak with people impacted by these challenges and learn how the divisions within the Department of Public Safety help protect and support Ohioans. In this episode, DPS Director Andy Wilson speaks with Sima Merrick, Executive Director of the Ohio Emergency Management Agency, and retired Ohio State Highway Patrol Major Gary Allen, who survived the tornado that devastated Xenia in April of 1974. My parents covered me, shielding my body from flying bricks, shattered glass, and other debris. The deafening wind sounded like a team of fighter jets hovering above. It was the sound of devastation. In between my sobs, I could hear my dad praying to God for our protection. I looked down the hallway and saw the bedroom door slamming against the wall before ripping away from their hinges. The roof tore away and the walls around us crumbled. It was 4.40 p.m. That is when a tornado packing a 318-mile-per-hour wind splintered neighborhoods, reduced schools and businesses to piles of rubble, shredded graceful Victorians like paper dollhouses, and ripped apart historic landmarks that had stood for more than a century. April 3, 1974, was one of the most violent single-day tornado outbreaks ever to strike North America. Known as Black Wednesday, this system caused 4,148 twisters across 13 states, killed more than 300 people, injured nearly 6,000 others, and resulted in about a half a billion dollars in property damage. Xenia, Ohio was the hardest hit of all. That was an account of the 1974 Xenia tornado by author Jeff Lauterbach, who was five years old when he and his family survived the tornado. I'm Andy Wilson, director of the Ohio Department of Public Safety. Welcome to the Safe and Sound podcast, where we discuss real-life stories of safety and survival and how first responders and public safety officials work incredibly hard to keep you, your families, and your community safe. Here in Ohio, March starts tornado season for us. And that's not just in Ohio, it's across the entire Midwest. And in Ohio specifically, we believe tornado season runs basically March, really kind of through late fall. We've seen some late fall tornadoes here uh, the last few years. And today I'm joined by two very special guests who have experiences both in living through a tornado and responding to the aftermath of tornado events. They're going to share some of their experiences with us today. And and again, we're so incredibly happy uh, or thankful that they're willing to give us some of their time. First, we have Gary Allen. A Xenia native who was a young man when the tornado hit his community back in 1974. Gary, hello. Welcome to the Safe and Sound podcast. Hello, Director. Thanks for the invitation. We also have with us today Sima Merrick. Sima is the director of the Ohio Emergency Management Agency. The Ohio Emergency Management Agency is the division of the Ohio Department of Public Safety that interacts with Ohioans on often what is their worst day. The Ohio Emergency Management Agency responds to and helps people recover from both natural and man-made disasters. Sima, hello, and welcome to the Safe and Sound podcast. Morning, Director. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, listen, we're going to jump right in. And actually, we're going to jump in with you, Gary. Again, we're so uh, thankful to have you uh, on the podcast this morning. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. So where are you from? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Tell us about your your family growing up. Yes, sir. I was... uh I grew up in Xenia, Ohio. I was born in Springfield. Um, I lived in Xenia until I was 19 years old, and, and I joined the United States Army, and I uh, never went back. I joined a highway patrol uh, in 1989 as a member of the 118th Academy class. Uh, I stayed with the highway patrol for a total of 32 years, had a great career, uh, probably the best thing I ever did, along with joining the Army. Uh, currently, I'm the director of security for the Ohio Industrial Commission. I'm, I'm married, uh, have two sons, uh, and spend a lot of time doing things that I just didn't have time to do before. Hey, that's that's the story we hear about retirement uh, all all the time. Uh, let's actually go back uh, to your childhood in in Xenia. So, when when you grew up in Xenia, who all lived in the household? You have siblings. Mom and dad live in the household. Tell us a little bit about your family life. Uh, well, I could start with you know 1974. I had an older sister. She's 11 years older than me, so she was married at this time. She got married right out of high school. 
so I lived with mom and dad and my little brother, Tony. You know, growing up in Xenia, it was a, a typical small town. It was just a typical small town. Everybody knew each other. Um, when you got out of school, sometime you went home, sometime you went to somebody's house, uh, but nobody worried where you were. So everything was really peaceful and calm up, in, up until that point. So back in 1974, uh, when, when the tornado hit, and, and we're going to talk specifically about your experience with the tornado, uh, it was you, mom, dad, and you said little brother Tony? Yes. And how old was Tony? Well, first of all, how old were you, and then how old was Tony? I was nine, and Tony was four. Okay. Yeah, he was four. So did your dad Did your dad have a job where he worked first shift? So, so mom worked during the day, dad worked during the day, you went to school, and, and Tony went with mom? Yeah, I, I went, um, dad worked, uh, I think he was working at a paper company at the time um, around Dayton area, uh, and then Tony would go with mom, and then I went to school. And, you know, back then I went to Shawnee School, and you could walk to school. Even though it was probably two miles away. <laughs> the you, good old days. Yeah, like the good said. old days. You walked to school, and then you walked home with a group of friends. Right. Talk a little bit about the Xenia tornado. I think a, a lot of folks uh, may not realize just the, the, the gravity or severity of, of that tornado with respect to some of the storms that we see uh, these days. So, so going back to April 3rd, 1974, uh, the Xenia Trinity was a, an F5. It was categorized as an F5, and we'll talk in a, in a few minutes to Sema about exactly what that means. But that specific tornado had winds that were clocked at over 300 miles an hour. The tornado itself traveled about 52 miles an hour, up to 52 miles an hour as it moved uh, across Greene County and across the, the state. The funnel width for the, the specific t- tornado that hit Xenia was measured at, at approximately 1,000 yards. So that gives you some, some scope of how massive this storm was. It left a path of destruction that was 16 miles long. Uh, in total, uh, not just the, the immediate uh, destruction with the storm, but in the days afterwards, uh, there were 35 people killed as a result of the storm. That includes two guardsmen who died in a fire three days later, uh, just working in, in response and in recovery uh, to the storm there in Xenia. Uh, over 1,150 people were injured as a result of the, the storm there in Xenia. Uh, 1,098 homes destroyed, and there in the Greene County area, they suffered $95 million in damages. So obviously, just just one of the most catastrophic storms that, that we've ever seen here in Ohio. So 1974, you actually were on the ground in the, the really the center of this tornado as it struck uh, struck your hometown there. How old were you, 1974? Nine. I was nine years old. Okay. And do you have, as we sit here, do you have a pretty good recollection of the storm and of what happened that day? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it's one of those things you never forget. Right. Because it's, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. So what do you remember? So how did you first become aware that something was, was happening or something bad was going on? I was, uh, as I said earlier, I was home. Um, and by that time, Mom and, and Tony were home. So I was watching television, and we had a news, it was a news break. Uh, the weatherman, uh, Gil Whitney. Uh, now, they didn't have Doppler radars back then. They just <laughs> they just had that, that one radar. But I, I guess he identified it um, because it was a, as a hook cloud, uh, as what they called it. Um, and he told us that it was coming in our direction. So me and Tony go outside, <laughs> you know, and we're looking. We don't see anything. Uh, it's still pretty decent outside. It's getting cloudy, but it's pretty decent. And Mom comes out and she says, "But you got," she said, "They is there a tornado? There's a tornado coming." I say, "Yeah." Well, Mom, she tells me later she she really underestimated it because she grew up in Louisiana and she she used to pick cotton when she was a kid. And she said there was nothing to see tornadoes because they were, um, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, all of that. They had tornadoes in Louisiana. So mom said, we never really did anything except lay down. And and um, so we, we're out there. Everybody on the street's out there. Uh, everybody lives on the street. It's out there looking for this funnel cloud. Uh, and then we see it. And it's downtown, and it's coming, it's coming east. And... Uh, from the west, and we're just like, man, that that's a really nasty looking cloud. It looks like a thunderstorm cloud, but it's on the on the ground. It's close, uh, so we run back in the house and get under the bed, and you know, mom starts praying, 
uh, and then you you get that noise, uh, that freight train noise. You know, I, I, it's like a, a jets on the ground or something. I mean, it was a crazy noise. Uh, and I hear uh, one glass crack, and it just. Um, and we stayed there until we didn't hear anything, and uh, we didn't have any damage to our house. But two houses over, they were damaged. Uh, this place was really, really damaged, uh, and it, I mean, they ended up tearing it down. So, so tell us about you. You have a basement in the house? No, we didn't have a basement, and so we just we just got under the bed. So, so prior to this storm, had you had any? training or I remember when I was a kid you know we'd go to school and they would tell you what to do we'd have tornado drills you know right. everybody goes out in the hall you basically sit on the floor everybody sits shoulder to shoulder on the floor up against a wall you put your head between your knees I don't even know if I don't know if my kids even still do that these days but back before the Xenia tornado do you remember having any of that that training do you remember doing that you know I, I don't remember uh, doing it up until that point now we did it a lot afterwards it was a monthly occurrence afterwards um, but up to that point I I don't remember ever doing it okay so so when you hear tornado and you you go outside to look do you have any idea what's coming your way or can your nine-year-old mind at all <laughs> grasp? clearly you're standing outside so you don't grasp the dangerousness right. of the situation but you know and and that's the funny part because I didn't I didn't I had no idea what we were going into I knew it was a severe st- storm but I just thought, well, it's going to be like a thunderstorm. Right. And we had a covered porch, and we would always sit on the porch when it would rain because we just liked the rain. And so I'm thinking, is is that bad? But as you see it, um, you know, and it's off in the distance, then you realize, man, this is really bad. And everybody's outside, mm-hmm. and so everybody knows that it's really bad. So we just run back in the house and, and get under the bed. Was there a point where you said that a lot of your neighbors were out, everybody's out kind of looking at it, watching it come. Was there a point when, when like, everybody started panicking or running or screaming or anything like that that signaled to you as a nine-year-old, like, oh, boy, we're in trouble? Yeah, they were standing out, and everybody was – you could tell um, it, they were way um, more concerned than it was with a thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. They knew that there was, like, man, this was a really bad storm. And like I said, the the weatherman, I mean, Gil Whitney, was he was awesome. I, I mean, because they, they had no way of knowing if he wouldn't identify that. So, you know, he was one of those weathermen that if he said something, you believed him. Right. Because, right. you know, he was the guy. Right. You know, so you believed everything he said. And uh, so uh, everybody everybody's kind of looking around and they're talking to each other. The adults are talking. I'm not saying anything. And um and then mom says, okay, we better go in the house and get under the bed. Okay. And then I knew something bad because we never got under the bed during a thunderstorm. Right, so right. I knew something was going on. So you, mom, brother, actually get under the bed. And then yes. you, you say you hear hear the storm coming. You hear breaking glass. You hear the tornado coming. You hear breaking glass. And, and you give the classic, it sounds like a freight train. Everybody you talk to who has lived through a, a tornado, that's pretty much how they describe it as, as a freight train. What were you, do you remember what you were feeling, what you were thinking at some point? Were you just like, oh boy, this is the, the you know, this is serious. I, we could get hurt. Or could you even wrap your, again, at nine years old, Yeah, a lot of times you can't wrap your mind around it. I, I did. I, I was able to understand that, man, this is bad. You know, and, and you, you're thinking, you know, am, am I going to die? Uh, because, it's a, you know, it's an experience and you know it's it's catastrophic, something that you never experienced before. And everybody's concerned, you know, the weatherman's telling you that it's really bad. Mom has you under the bed and mom's praying. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, this this is gonna be really, really right. bad. Right. And um, we were just blessed that it wasn't as bad as as uh, it could have been. Right. It was, it was for some people. And you said your house didn't sustain too much damage. No, we, we didn't. It was that one window. Okay. Uh, it, it wasn't even a window, it was, we had a door. It was like a storm door. It had eight little, probably eight by ten planes, uh, pieces of uh, glass in it, and one of those cracked out, just completely was out on the ground. But the other seven were intact. And so, you know, it could have been from the door slamming back and forth or something like that or, uh, you know, or pressure or whatever it was. But that was really that was really it. But there was a lot of damage and destruction around us, behind us, um, 
it was just it was hit and miss and that's what i was going to ask so walk us or you walk outside you see that your house is still standing uh you know very fortunate obviously but as you look around your neighborhood where you grow up the the the, the area where you play describe what you're seeing yeah so the house next door was there um that was there and i remember there were some trees down in the back the house directly behind us is just the roof is gone I mean, it's just beat up. Uh, they ended up, you know, because I remember they built a brand new house. Was, and we used to go in there and look and see what they were doing. And they built a brand new house. And um, But the house next to that was completely intact, except for a tree down in, in the backyard. Um, so after we get out and venture a little bit, then you realize the, the destruction that's just hit and miss all over the city, especially in downtown Xenia. It was, and that was the next day, the right. following day. Right. Now, are you are, are your neighbors starting to come out? Uh, how are people like carrying themselves or, or, or what's the emergency response? Are you seeing fire and police cut, starting to come into the neighborhood? Walk us through what's going on there. Yeah. So you're hearing sirens. Um, you're hearing a lot of sirens. And, um, you know, like I said, it, it kind of um, reminds you of what a war zone would mm-hmm. be like, you know, because there, there's a lot of excitement. The street is clear where we live up to a point. Um, maybe a mile down the street, it's not clear, but it's clear of where we live. So we see a lot of first responders going down, um, going down through town because we live on Main Street, and you know, and like I said, like four blocks away is is down is uh, is downtown. The neighbors are there, and I remember uh, our neighbor had she had she had six kids, and and all the kids were there, um, and you know we're all out there talking to each other, just kind of discussing what we saw or what we heard, you know, or, and everybody's okay. That was the main thing. Everybody's kind of walking around, making sure everybody's okay. Because the aftermath of the storm, nothing happened, right? It just kind of got quiet and everybody's outside in disbelief. You just can't believe what we just went through, right? you know? And it's just really uh, kind of shocking. The, 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 the weirdest part was the next day mm-hmm. when we were able to go out and, and kind of, Re, you know, look out and research what happened. So before we get to the next day, there's there's a, a missing piece of the story that we haven't talked about. You, your dad, right? You, you talked about your mom, yourself, your brother hiding under the bed. Where's your dad, and how does he make it through this? Well, my my dad, right? I got to tell you, my, my dad's a different kind of guy. He, he's you know he's John Wayne, Audie <laughs> Murphy, Chuck Norris, tough. You know, <laughs> so he's coming home and. He knows about this tornado. He's on his way home. And so he he gets to a point where he can't drive any longer because there's stuff on the road and he can't get there. So he runs um, to some houses and he tries to get in and no one lets him in. Huh. And the tornado's coming. It's not even and it's not even coming in his direction. I mean, it's not where he is right at the time, but it's been there. So right. he doesn't know what's happening. So he's knocking on the door. No one lets him in. He ends up laying on the ground in a ditch. Uh. And he said, and all of that stuff happened right around him. He said it, it never hit, got him, but he said, but he could see the whole thing and stuff flying around. And actually, one of the houses where he was laying in the ditch, I mean, I'm picturing this in my mind's eye. This house was destroyed. And it just, but he, it, nothing happened to him. And then he ended up running home. So he gets there. I don't know, probably 45 minutes after everything happens. He has to run home because he can't drive home. Because the roads are just too destroyed? Yeah, yeah, there's stuff all over the roads, the debris. And so his car, because I think his car stayed there for several days until they clean, you know, clean the road. And he just, he runs home. So that was such a relief because that was the first thing I thought, you know, it's like, man, where's dad, Mm -hmm. you know? But it's strange because part of me thinks, ah, he's okay. You know, because oh. I'm nine, and and, and I never seen nothing happening. Right, he's Chuck know. Norris in your yeah. in, in your head. Yeah, the, the 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 problem back then too is you don't have cell phones. No, and uh, I'm sure the lot the telephone lines were down. Probably, right, you probably couldn't call anyone. So that had to be, even though again in your mind your dad's Chuck Norris and and he's invincible. I I, I bet in your mom's mind she was she was like, oh, where's he yeah. at? Yeah, and she, you know, like mom, she's just calm. You know, right. she's just like. She don't. She doesn't mention it or anything, and then I see him, and I, you know, I was like, man, he made it. 
Man, you know, so that had to be such a relief. That yeah, had to be such it was. A relief. So what? A, what a fascinating story as far as him having to actually get down in a in a ditch. I always wonder, and I want to ask some of this at some point, but. Uh, you know, when I'm driving and, and there's a, a storm coming and I, I, this actually happened to me maybe two years ago, I was driving back from a meeting that I had up in Port Clinton. I'm driving through Hardin County and, and my phone is going off. The, the warning system is going on my phone. It's like tornadoes headed your way, tornadoes. And I could see these really black clouds and I'm like, oh man, I'm driving in the middle of an area that I don't know that well. And if I see a funnel cloud popped out, I was I was humming, just trying to beat the cloud because I could see, I knew I knew where the storm system was, and if it made it a little further south, I knew I was going to be out of it. So I'm humming along, trying to get out of that storm system. But I'm start war gaming in my head. I'm like, hey, look, if if a funnel cloud drops out of that the, that that dark sky, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? You know, part of part of me is like, do I just sit in the car and ride it out. Do I try to get under a bridge? So, some of, we're coming to you to, to answer some of those questions for us. But to hear your dad have to actually live that in probably the biggest tornado to to, to hit Ohio in recorded history, right. and that he jumped down a ditch and and literally just held on and, and rode it out is is a fascinating story. So. Walk us through the, the the days after. You talked about once you were able to kind of get out and, and go downtown Xenia. What do you remember? What stands out to you about that? What stood out is you got I got lost, and I remember it was some friends of mine, some guys who live across the street. We we're all around the same age, and we go downtown on our bicycles as far as we could go because you know you could get a lot farther on a bicycle than a car. So we're just kind of looking at everything, and there's a lot of people downtown because there was some looting. Um, you know, because there were jewelry stores and there were all kinds of stores downtown, um, small businesses. And there were just a lot of people down there. And I knew uh, that people were down there looting and the law enforcement presence down there was pretty thick, you know, and they're telling you, go home. Right. You know, you know, you kids don't need to be down here. You kids need to go home. And, and I always tell everybody, I was first, my first interaction with a state trooper because I saw a state trooper and he's the one who told us, like, you kids need to go home, you know, and. But but the funny part was we didn't we didn't know where we were going because we were we the landmarks weren't there some of them and then you had to see what you did could identify and get back um, and that was really probably the most confusing part of the whole thing but there was a Kroger's um, right next to a railroad tracks and um, there was the trains uh, it, I I don't remember uh, how many. Um, and how how many carts were on the train? But the the train had flipped over multiple times, oh. right on top of this Kroger, and in and um, the Kroger was destroyed. And the thing was about the days after, if you went down in that Kroger, man, I've never seen so many rats. And oh, really? Oh, yeah. And it was just rats were everywhere because it was downtown and it was destroyed. And and I remember that so well. The the number of rats you would see, like. You know, I guess it's like what New York City has and mm -hmm. rats everywhere. That that is and interesting. Yeah, yeah that's because interesting. it was just so much open, exposed food, and so over time, uh, you would see dogs, rats. You see all kind of animals down there just eating some of that food uh, that was out of those uh, grocery stores. And because um, we we would go down there, and uh, my friend had a BB gun, and he would just call it ratting. He's mm -hmm. like, I'm gonna go ratting, and he would just like to go shoot rats. Yeah, you know. I mean, we're talking. This is Xenia. That's, yeah, that, that's fun. Yeah. So the animals were looting. So, <laughs> yeah. and one of the things that that stands out to me in the story again is just we talk about how different times are back then, and uh, as compared to now is, and and my parents would have been the same way. I mean, we used to get on our bikes and just ride all over the place. You talk of the day or the days after tornado right. where there's debris everywhere, and you and your buddies just hop on the bikes and kind of go exploring. Yeah. So. That's uh, what an what a what an interesting perspective. And, and again, what's what's interesting is this is the town that you grew up in. This is the town that you play in all the time in areas that you're very familiar with. And it's so destroyed that you get confused as to where you actually are because there's no reference points or landmarks right. that you can recognize. Right, just utter destruction. You know, and the, and the thing um, as far as Zenia is concerned, I'm not sure how. Um, I'm not sure Xenia ever really completely recovered from that because um, a lot of people left okay. um, and it was just it was one of those things you know and, but 
it was a lot of pride there. And I, you know, the motto became Xenia Lives. Mm-hmm. And, and I had, I, I still have a Xenia Lives bumper sticker. Everybody put it on their cars, you know, because they were determined to come back, you know, because it was a really resilient community at that time. Um, and, and in, in a weird way, it, it brought people together right. a lot. Right. I mean, it really did. I mean, it was a close-knit community anyway, but everybody was willing to help everybody else. Right. And, and you know, again, I think someone can speak to that a, a little bit. I think a lot of times in these tragedies or, or in these disasters, it's very traumatic and, and there's a lot of trauma and, and, and pain associated with it. But a lot of times it drives that community to, to, to be stronger, to come out the backside stronger. Not only that, it drives the surrounding communities to, to come in and support. And, and again, some and I spent a lot of time up in East Palestine earlier this year. I mean, there were people from all over the state just bringing in water and supplies. And I'm sure it's the same way. in right. You know, in, in a lot of ways, these disasters really bring out the best of humanity. You know, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of times where we won't even talk to our neighbors, wave at our neighbors, say hi to our neighbors, uh, just in normal life. Right. But then if there's a tragedy, we're bringing them water, we're, we're trying to help them out. So it's, it's unfortunate that it takes a tragedy to, to bring out the best in humanity. But I think when you step back and actually have the opportunity to, to observe it sometimes, you, you do get to see the, the better part of people. So it, I'm glad to hear that, that that was part of your experience as well. So listen, Gary, thank you very much for, for sharing your story with us. We, we certainly want to talk a little bit about the emergency management side of, of tornadoes. This is tornado season and we are public safety. So we want to talk about um, you know, what happens from the, the public safety side when a, a tragedy or disaster like this strikes uh, a community like yours. So we're very, very fortunate to have with us today Sima Merrick, who, as I said earlier, is the, the director of the Ohio Emergency Management Agency. And Sima, I talked a little bit about tornado season, trying to pin down exactly when it is here in Ohio. And we think it starts right around March. It's when really kind of temperatures start changing. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, I think when I was a kid, it, it would go through September-ish, October-ish. But, but we were talking before the podcast that some of the worst tornadoes, some of the, the more active tornado systems that you're seeing actually are going into the November time frame. Mm-hmm. So if you could take a few minutes, tell us about, uh, well, first of all, tell us about EMA. Tell us what you do at EMA, what EMA does, and then tell us about tornado season here in Ohio with respect to, to when people should be preparing or watching out for tornadoes. Sure. Thanks, Director. Um, so the emergency management space is the space that um, works on preparedness and helping people understand um um, events and activities and hazards that they should prepare for. So, you know, I'll share a little bit. Um, I have a bunch of nieces, and one of them said, you know, as emergency management director, do you have a preparedness kit? And I was like, kind of. <laughs> you know, which made me think about that I didn't really have that kit completely put together. So we, we do a lot of messaging. We do communication. We work on preparedness. We do exercises. We move into then, of course, our operational footprint that um, is where we are coordinating and communicating with all the agencies, departments, and stakeholders that would help those people on their worst day, right, after a tornado, a train derailment, a, a catastrophic flood. And then in that, we coordinate the response. And immediately, when an event occurs, people are starting to recover in their short-term recovery there's long-term recovery. And then in the case of Xenia, they, they continue to recover because there's always those signs of the new built buildings versus the ones right. that still exist. You can kind of see that path still today through Xenia with the newer track of homes versus all the ones that are still there. And then, and then of course, we work on mitigation techniques and ways for people to build resilience. So we do a lot. We, we, we kind of work that whole piece of it from response to consequence management. But the big part of us um, and, and our role is dealing with consequence management and helping people return to some type of normalcy, whatever that looks like afterwards. Um, moving you know, into tornadoes, um, tornado season, um, we, we do severe weather awareness in the spring. Um, we have the tornado safety drill across the state. But one of the tornadoes that I remember um, most vividly was Veterans Day weekend. Um, I happened to be in the building, and 
Santa Claus 2 movie was coming out. And it was um, at, in, in Van Wert, a tornado warning came up. And the very first thing that happened was they said that the, the, the a theater was hit and it was full oh. for a matinee. Well, of course, it's a Saturday, right? It's in 2002. So long story short, it ended up that, and, you know, theaters are kind of not built as shelters. So the person who owned it um, listened to the warning, was aware of it, and got everyone into the center by the concession stand. Mm -hmm. It was not a direct hit on that, but we didn't know that for probably an hour. And neither did the county emergency management director. So in Ohio, we have um, 88 counties, and each county has a county emergency management director who is very well-versed. And then, of course, I'm the director of the state agency, and we communicate with all those 88 um, emergency management directors on all spaces emergency management. When we found out it wasn't directly hit, it was this amazing relief. Absolutely. Because you're like, it's a Saturday. It, it it people are at a matinee. They're getting ready for the holiday season to kick off, you know. And um, and you knew there were probably a lot of children, which every life matters. But when they're kids, you kind of like, oh no, because they get frightened. Right. So so those tornadoes are interesting. I'll, I'll I'll throw out a couple statistics. In 2022, Ohio had 27 tornadoes confirmed across the state. These storms impacted 25 counties. There were five injuries reported, but we didn't have any fatalities. And actually, our last fatality from a tornado in Ohio was in May of 2019, and it was an EF3 tornado that came through Mercer County. This year, as of April 25th, we've already had 23 tornadoes, um, and we are starting at a very higher pace this year in in our tornado um, or the amount of tornadoes we've seen touchdown in Ohio. Okay. So listen, you, you said a couple of things that I want to circle back and, and touch on. First of all, you talked about a, a statewide tornado safety drill. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that. When do you do that? When is that? How does that work? So it occurs during Severe Weather Awareness Week, which is in March. It's designated um, our, our media and, and um, TV stations across the state are very, very involved and are very aware of that, um, support that wholeheartedly. The National Weather Service and the Ohio Committee for Severe Weather Awareness puts that um, out in schools and state agencies and buildings, and, and we hope that the private sector as well, um, at, at 10.50 on a given date for each year, the tornado sirens will go off as a statewide tornado drill, and we ask everyone to participate in that just so people have that awareness. Because we don't know if they still do tornado drills like they used to years ago, right. right? We have cell phones now. We have social media. We have accessibility um, to a lot of ways to get warnings. And I think some people are like, well, you know, if you, you have notifications and that kind of stuff. But it is a one day a year where we have a lot of participation for people to practice. You talked about tornado sirens. I, I remember when I was a kid, you know, they, they do those tests. I, I want to say it was like every Wednesday at noon or something mm -hmm. like that where the sirens would go off. Do most communities have those sirens? And if they do, who, who sets those off? Is it, the, is it emergency management? Is it the local fire department? Is it the National Weather Service? Talk about how that works. A little bit. <clears throat> so with warning sirens, first of all, I want, I want to make sure that people understand outdoor warning or outdoor tornado sirens are for outdoors. A lot of us can hear them indoors, but they should not be your only method of warning um, because their intention is to alert folks who are outdoors. Um, it varies who sets those off. So we have power plant counties in the state. So a couple of those counties that um, they, they have a lot of sirens because they use those for warnings and drills and testing of power plants. But those same sirens get used for all hazards as well as weather. Um, each, each county has some. It varies. It could be a couple to, you know, 80, 90 sirens uh, throughout the state. Um, and each day of the week, um, counties pick that day. So... 
in particular a county up on Lake Erie, um, they do Fridays. Okay. Um, here in central Ohio, in Franklin County, ours is Wednesday at noon. And if you live by a tornado siren, you kind of could set your watch to it if right. you know that. Right. So. So you, you you talked about the the tornado signs for being outside. You I I like Gary's story. You back in back in the old days, there was really only uh, two ways you found out there was a tornado coming. You heard that outdoor uh, siren and you knew the tornado warning, or you just happened to be watching the news, and they'd break in and, and again they'd run like a ticker across the bottom. I don't remember right. if you remember that. They'd run like a ticker across the bottom with it with the weather update. Clearly, we are doing a better job in this day and age of leveraging technology. So, uh, again, the story I told about driving home from from Lake Erie, Port Clinton area, my phone was going. Uh, it was either an Amber Alert or a, or tornado or something. So I was able to, you know, get that warning. So I think uh, the emergency management folks uh, and the early warning systems have really kind of been upgraded to to adjust for technology so that really we can try to reach people wherever they are. And actually, you you've done some good work. I know they're doing some good work in trying to get uh, folks who may have who may be hearing impaired mm-hmm. or visually impaired trying to make sure that they have the, the the warning systems they need as well so we do um we continue to work with all sectors um um people who you know i have an aunt who's in her 80s she will not give up her flip phone she <laughs> just won't do it and i worry about that and i worry about how she gets her warning she said well you kids will call me right you get you all call and we do but but we have so many ways to receive warnings today that sometimes it can be overwhelming. So point. part of our messaging is to make sure that people understand what they have readily available. They have their notifications turned on in on their phone. They're even in our um, devices now able to separate um, some warnings from others, right? You can have your weather warnings on. We encourage people to download your favorite um, TV station's weather app so or, or, or the TV station's app and in there you can select the notifications. Um, I happen to have a bunch of apps across the state from our different sectors and, and different TV stations. Um, and, and you know, at nighttime sometimes, I wanna turn them off if I get a Northern Ohio or a Cincinnati one, and I tell myself, don't turn it off, because there's gonna be one of those that alerts you, even if it's an amber, right? Um, that, that, you, that could save your life or your family's. Right. So one of the things that we had the opportunity to talk to to Gary about beforehand, we would kind of talk about his situation and and his experience, but he talked about preparing and and Gary shared the story with us that like you, you just didn't feel like you were prepared and then one of the one of the issues you had to deal with is the electricity was out for for quite some time and and once that sun went down you had to live by by flashlights so Sima from a from an emergency management and preparing for emergencies point of view what what kind of advice do you have for folks with respect to preparing for, uh, we'll, we'll focus on tornadoes because that's what we're talking about, but but these types of natural disasters. So, you know, preparing doesn't have to be difficult. It's actually pretty easy. It's just being aware of what you're used to, right? If if um, if you live um, in, in the plains or the Midwest, you know that there is a good chance for tornadoes. People on the West Coast, um, plan for wildfires. For us, for tornadoes in particular, um, notifications and warning, pay attention to that, pay attention to your weather, um, and know that if severe weather is coming your way, charge your devices, because that's how we get a lot of warning these days. Have batteries available, flashlights available. Um, we encourage, no matter what the, the event would be, is that you have 72 hours of water mm-hmm a gallon a day per person. So if you have a family of four, you have four gallons per day for three days. Um, and that, that is to just four when, when you know there's an event or the electricity, those kinds of things aren't working. You wanna make sure that you have a plan and you have an understanding of where your children or your parents or um, um, where you would meet up after an event. You know, um, Gary mentioned when everything was tore up, even though it was the next day, it was kind of confusing. And, and I've, I've been to a couple tornadoes, in particular blue ash, and even though damage is very similar, 
it can be very different. And one of the things I wanted to mention about the blue ash tornado is that I walked in and there are these beautiful homes and one home had like a third of the house shared off. Things were blown around, pictures were broke, but two glasses of wine were still sitting on the table and never moved. And it's, it's amazing the different things that can happen in these storms. And you need to know how to reconnect with the people who are most important. So you want to make sure, first and foremost, that you have that plan and that plan of how you reconnect with people and where you would go um, after an emergency or after an event has happened. So that I, I think you make a, a great point there. Well, I know one of the problems that, that we have when we have a, an event like this is people from the outside trying to come into mm -hmm. the, the, the damaged area. So you got first, you got down power lines, you've got debris all over the place. It's actually a pretty dangerous situation. And then you have first responders inside the zone trying to do their work and, and keep people safe. A lot of times that's complicated by people, um, you know, Understandably, you know, people are curious. They want to see see what's going on, um, but it, it can cause all kinds of, of problems. Now, again, is it a different situation if I live outside the zone, but my loved one is in the zone? I'm trying to get to my loved one, or you know. So, can you give us some guidance on when when these emergencies happen? Or these disasters happen. The importance of letting first responders do their thing. The, the importance of having a good plan so that you don't have to go in to to that danger area. Yeah. So the plans um, can be a couple things. Um, the first one is obviously individuals and family, but communities have plans also and how to deal with it. They know how to set up their zones, how to keep people out. Depending on the event, you know, we've had a mass shooting in the state in the last four or five years, setting up that crisis communication center where you make a good point. You may be outside of where that event happened, but you could have loved ones inside. Um, messaging and letting people know in the first responders on the perimeter, being able to direct family members to find out what's happening on the inside is a great thing. And we continue to talk about that and drill and exercise those plans with our communities. So those communities always have those crisis plans on how to set that up and where a, a, a crisis um, or a family assistance center may be on the outskirts to help you figure out what's going in. So there's all kinds of planning that occurs with our local officials, um, as well as our state officials. Who sets up those family assistance or reunification? Is it the local county emergency managers? Is it the local fire department? Is the incident commander? Who's in charge of that? So I think it changes. It, it can be different in each event. Generally, it's the emergency manager and the emergency management team. But what happens is a command center is set up, and the people in there, there's an incident commander. So a good bit of time, it's the fire chief. Okay. But there are times it's law enforcement or a police chief or a sheriff, depending on the event. Um, that is part of that plan that gets executed during an event. So there may be a team that's working setting up reunification centers, setting up fatality management centers, crisis centers. Then there's another part that's working on search and rescue. And they know where those resources are, where they're going, how they're being detailed, what areas they've covered to ensure that that we have knocked on everyone's doors. And so I think uh, a piece that we don't talk about, we talk about search and rescue, we talk about the safety aspects of these, but but really this is this is more for uh, you know, public safety folks who may be listening to this. Uh, the, the, the piece that we just cannot understate enough is the communications piece. That's right. And, and you have got, if your jurisdiction has one of these incidents, you have got to be constantly communicating with the public uh, about where reunification is, where the family assistance is, what the plan is, what you're doing, uh, or otherwise people are going to come down and try to figure out on, on their own. So yeah. uh, again, I know folks who listen to this are in the, the public safety community. We just cannot stress that enough. And I don't know if you want to speak to that or not. Yeah, you know, we um, communication at all levels. It's got to be at the local level. It has to be at the scene. It has to be through the media. It has to be accurate, articulate, and it has to be delivered in a way that everyone can understand it. 
Um, one of the things that, that we noticed actually in another event in Northwest Ohio um, was that we have to pay attention to what our community's makeup is. And, and that emergency manager, that local incident commander is going to know that. But we had um, some tornadoes and severe storms up in Northwest Ohio, and there was a pocket of workers um, that were Japanese. And we didn't have anyone on the team that spoke Japanese. So quickly we had to work, um, and this was years ago, and we worked with Honda to help and get us engaged immediately with people that we could forward deploy to help these people understand. Because some of them could not, actually a majority of them, could not read English. And most of the stuff we put out was in English. Right. Today we're far better. Right. Um, we have done we have done assistance centers where we have had um, handouts, flyers, and paperwork in eight different languages, and interpreters available to help anyone beyond those eight. Um, we have relationships with communications folks, so that's the first thing. The set th second thing to remember is, if we don't communicate it and communicate the truths. Um, and the, the um, accuracies of what's going on, someone else will try to communicate it, and then that becomes the second emergency you're dealing with because you're now trying to clear up what was not accurate, and you're trying to put out true information. Right. And, and then the third thing that we deal with a lot today is um, there is a lot of information on social media, and I would recommend that when people are unsure, they verify it. Right, absolutely. That, that, and that again, that's the key of the local jurisdiction putting having having a either a Facebook page or mm -hmm. some kind of platform where they're communicating the most accurate, up to date information, so that when somebody does hear something from their friends or from something else uh, on on social media, that they can at least bounce that off of the the, the local government side or whoever's in, in charge with the local uh, with the local response. And again, a lot of times what we have found in some of these emergency responses is some of the information that goes out on social the unverified mm -hmm. uh, false information that goes out on social media is actually they're foreign actors a lot of times who right. are who are putting information out just to, to, to cause issues so that's that's something that we have to work our way through and and i think you're right that the best way you do that is a clear concise and accurate up-to-date uh communication plan from from the local government so i think that's great so the only thing i would add director and and you made me think of this is that we have to think about all sectors right so after an um, or during and after an emergency there are a lot of um, anxieties right. and, and mental health and where do I go and what's happened to my property and, and are my kids going to be able to go back to school? Um, so one of the things in the communication plan is we have to think about all sectors. Um, the, uh, um, the people who can't help themselves, how do we help them? Um, how do we get um, people reconnected to their durable medical equipment and where do they go to do that? Where are shelters set up? Are those shelters pet friendly? And so that's just a few of them. But we have to think the full 360 right. when we're communicating to make sure that we are giving um, folks that clear guidance on where they can go to get their assistance. Right. And, and I like that 360. You got to think of things that you never would think of. Let's use Gary's example. Great example. When you're dealing with recovery from a tornado in Xenia, Ohio, you're not going to be thinking about what are we going to do with all these rats, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, you know, there a lot of times in these emergency situations, things pop up that you just would never, uh, just never even expect. So you just got to be prepared for all contingencies. Uh, let's talk very quickly about, we hear F1, F2, F3, F4 uh, tornadoes. What, what does that mean? And how does EMA work with the National Weather Service in uh, not only putting out information about storms that are coming, but uh, doing damage assessment after a storm sure. comes through. Yep. So um, tornado warnings are issued by the National Weather Service. And um, so when people say, what is an EFS or an EF? It's an enhanced Fujita scale. And it's a scale that they use that ranks tornadoes. There are six of them. And what's confusing is it starts with EF0 and goes to EF5. So even straight line winds, if they're not a tornado, 
can be devastating and very damaging. But a weak, they classify weak tornadoes as EF zeros or ones, and they have wind speeds of 65 to 110 miles an hour. A strong is an EF2 or an EF3 with wind speeds of 111 to 165 miles an hour. And then the violent storms are EF4s and 5s with wind speeds of 166 to 200 miles an hour. And they can even go higher. It would include the higher ones. But we see the majority of those. Um, We at Ohio Emergency Management have a 24-hour watch office. And that watch office, although it's all hazards, we are really connected nonstop with the National Weather Service. So we're in chat rooms and on phones, um, monitoring all the different um, um, uh, models and, and things that they're putting out for everything, right? Drought, high winds, extreme heat, which is another one that's coming up. Um, and we're connected with them all the time. In Ohio, we have five National Weather Services that have forecasting areas. So we do meetings with the National Weather Service to ensure that we know um, how to use their tools, how to be connected, and when things are really ramping up, we ramp up the watch office with additional staffing to ensure that we have someone connected with the National Weather Service. When an event occurs, we'll use a tornado, and we know that it's happened. Our very first call is to the community. And it's like, are you okay? What do you need? We're monitoring. While we're doing that, each county um, has an assigned um, uh, regional liaison from Ohio Emergency Management, and those regional liaisons live within their um, designated area. So they'll respond to the counties that need assistance or to the field to start assessing early damage assessment to say this is looking pretty bad, um, there's this is a lot of barn damage, still significant for people, but it's different when you have outbuilding and barn damage versus your home. Um, so that is the very first thing. You know, we get these regional folks out to give us boots on the ground. That also includes our law enforcement partners and fire. So we're working with them. We're touching base with them. Incident command centers are set up, and we're getting firsthand information live back. Um, while all that's happening, the emergency management space and myself, of course, will make that first call to you. And, and we coordinate then with our, um, our administration, our governor's team, um, the, the Department of Transportation, the National Guard, the Highway Patrol are some of the ones that are immediate and almost on every call. Because somewhere along there, we have those public safety needs or we have response needs, and those are the folks that can go. And, and we're doing coordination calls and ensuring that everyone's on the right um, same page, that they're working in their channels, they're, they're reaching out to their stakeholders to see what they need and to ensure that the response for this community and, and in Ohio is swift, efficient, and effective. Right. So you, you, you make a great point. Uh, Governor DeWine, uh, a Green County native, uh, you know, uh, family peripherally experienced, you know, obviously the storm, the storm system and, and the devastation afterwards. And um, I, I just we, we can't understate how involved he is when we have these types of events going on. So it's a testament to Governor DeWine. He uh we kind of had to hold him back, right? <laughs> right, right? He wanted to go right away. Yes. He wanted to be right out there. We we're like, well, can we should wait till light, daylight, right? Because there was debris everywhere. Um, we weren't sure the scope and how many um, homes were there. The storm system, and if if I may, I'll talk just a little bit about it. Um, on coordination, I got a call from the um, Indiana State Emergency Management Director and said. Hey, some of this is Brian. Um, we generally here in Indiana take the brunt of these storms, but we can't do it this time. And this is building as it's coming toward you. At the same time, my operations administrator and watch office is calling me saying they're they're issuing like the highest level about the storm. And I'm kind of concerned it's coming, it's coming across the state line right now. I was like, oh boy. And it's Sunday night of Memorial Day, Monday night of Memorial Day. Um so it, Indiana continues to talk to my watch office. The director continues to talk. He said, it's building. We, we are seeing debris on the radar. We're seeing the, signa- the debris signature. 
when you see debris signatures on radar, you know it's there's a lot happening. There, um, there are things being blown apart. Right. And in Mercer County, um, the Mercer County EM, he they got the first tornado of of the system. He had called and said, "I'm not leaving. I had to check on my family, my mom and dad." He said, "But I'm here and." It is verified this is debris signature. And that's actually where we had a fatality out of that event. Then they started popping. Well, as that one got closer and closer to Dayton, Children's Hospital was starting to make arrangements in Dayton for how they were going to move and where they were going to move folks within the hospital to make sure they were safe into their their safe spaces. I did have a gentleman tell me um, in the aftermath who worked for a fire department he said, it's the craziest thing. I've never seen it. He said, this tornado was heading directly for Children's Hospital. I mean, you could see it coming. And it was like when it came to 35, it hung a left. Mm-hmm. Tornadoes don't do that. Right. You know, they don't go, oh, you know, I'm going to zigzag. And, and he, to this day, actually, I have goosebumps talking about it, said to me when we were there for the damage assessment, if, if, People are not spiritual, they are now. Mm. Because the folks that were near that saw that. And it kind of veered off and around that. And it is it is um, amazing what people remember, um, how it sticks with you, um, and how it changes you. And you carry that forever, which then in the recovery comes the mental health pieces. Right. And all of those kinds of things, right? So, and again, the the the, the fact that you had to hold the governor back that that comes from a desire actually to get into those communities and make sure they're okay and make sure they have the resources that they need to cope with the That's aftermath. Right. And and that is he's incredibly passionate about getting on the ground and being there for the folks in those communities uh, to to make sure they're taken care of. So we're we're gonna head towards the finish here uh, with with this question. I'm in my house. I have my family the tornado sirens and and my phone is going off that there's a tornado headed towards my house what do i do to keep my family safe inside my house so inside the house please don't go out we all want to look at it right (laughs) gary um, allen and be be a looky-loo but we don't want to do that know the safest space in your home if you have a lower level or a basement that's going to be the place to to be um if you don't get into a center interior room um, uh, and, 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 and try to stay away from all windows and, and be together in that center because it's going to hit those outer walls first. Um, if you're in a car, I'm going to move to car real quick. Yes, that's where I'm um, going next. That was okay. going to be question number two. All right. Do not, um, do not take shelter under a bridge or an overpass. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. It is good to know. That's good to know because I, for some reason, thought that that's what I would do. Yeah, no, you don't. You don't want to do that. You want to get to somewhere that you can um, take shelter, or if you no, have a known shelter, if you cannot get there, um, we recommend that if you stay in the car, you cover your head and 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 kind of tuck. And if there's nowhere else you can get, if you get out of the car, get into a ditch or a low lying ravine, and and kind of flatten out, protecting your head. Okay. So the question, the question for me always was, do I get out of the car or do I stay in the car? So I mean, that's, that's the decision point that you're going to make. And I don't know if there is a right answer or a good know. answer. I, I, I would imagine it depend on what's around you. Yeah. So, well, listen, Summit, thank you very much for sharing your expertise with us on this important topic. Obviously, it is tornado season. This is part of our Safe and Sound uh, Summer Safety Series. So we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Gary, having lived through a, a tornado yourself, do you have anything uh, for our listeners uh, with your experience? Uh, yes, sir. The only thing I would say is uh, really I would uh, reiterate what Sima said is have a plan, you know, and make sure your family knows the plan, uh, what you would do in case, um, not only at home, but also at work. Make sure you have a plan. Uh, you have the resources, uh, emergency plan, which is which is uh, really important. Um, and I, I, cause I think some people don't take that into consideration because uh, these things pop up on you fast, which, you know, nowadays we have far more notice than we had in right. 1974. But still, if you have everything together, um, 
that that's that's the best way to look at it. Well, again, we, we certainly appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come spend some time with us today to share your experience there from, from 1974. Thank you so much for your service, both in the military and in the patrol. We're so incredibly glad that you and your family uh, lived through this and came through uh, unharmed. And uh, again, this is part of our summer safety series here on Safe and Sound, and, and we're doing everything we can here in the Department of Public Safety to keep our friends, our families, our communities safe and sound. The Safe and Sound podcast is recorded by the Ohio Department of Public Safety. Links and more information can be found in this episode's show notes. And for more information on all nine divisions of the Ohio Department of Public Safety, visit publicsafety.ohio.gov. Thank you.